So you've got to be able to balance your workload so that if there's an acquisition that starts to happen of some size, you can dedicate all your time to it. And you can only do that if you've got the right people operationally running the business. The ability to effectively clear out the uh, very important but not vital and replace it with the vital for a while and then go back to the very important and have the people around you to allow you to make that balance is, is the key thing. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Pep Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliffe. In this episode, we are joined by one of our most long-standing founding members who has been part of the community from the beginning. We're joined by Chris Merry, CEO of Stonehaven Fleming, an independent advisor to the world's leading families and wealth creators. Prior to taking the job at Stonehaven Fleming, Chris has held CEO positions at four other businesses, most recently at IPES, which he took through a successful trade exit in 2018. In this episode, Chris looks back through his career and tells us what lessons he has learned in becoming a successful high-growth CEO. He also walks us through how to build a comprehensive and efficient M&A strategy. Now, over to Sam and Chris. So today we're, we're joined by uh, one of our original honorary members, founding members in Pep Talks, casting our minds back to pre, pre-COVID and pre-pandemic. It must have been 2018, 19 when we first had our conversations about Pep Talks and you were probably thinking, yeah, that sounds interesting, Sam, but yeah, let's, let's maybe get it going and see what happens. But I managed to catch you, Chris Merry, our guest today, I think between jobs, didn't I? I think maybe that's that's that was the timing. You did, yes. I think I, I just sold iPairs and uh, was waiting for that to complete and then thinking about what I might do next. Yeah, and we'd, we'd sort of known each other to an extent prior to that, but really got to know each other well in the last three or four years. And I thought what would be interesting is just to talk a little bit about your experiences. You're now in your your second CEO seat under private equity ownership, the first one being, as you said, with with IPES. We'd quite like to hear a bit about that role, but also about the current role. And, you know, think about really the experiences of, the multi-experiences of being a private equity-backed CEO and what you learn from one um, one role that you then bring into the next. Um, delighted to have you with us, Chris. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I should probably tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing now. So, and we'll, and we'll talk a bit about IPES at the same time. So Chris is, is um, the CEO of Stonehaven Fleming, um, became CEO in 2019. Yeah, September 2019. So it's coming up for three years. And, and Stonehaven Fleming is um, a private wealth, wealth management advisory firm created by some famous English yeah. <laughs> historic banking names, Robert Fleming. and Yeah, the antecedents go back to 1890. Uh, and as you, as you say, Robert Fleming. And Robert Fleming made all of his money in railways in America and then came back here and cut, cut out 80 years and rolled forward very quickly and had the Robert Fleming um, Bank, so the, yeah. the, the merchant bank. Very successful. Uh, and that combined with Stonehenge. And so we describe ourselves as, I suppose, a, a multifamily office. But multifamily office, you can define however you'd like to define it. So advising people uh, ab- about their wealth, whether that's uh, multinational families, emerging entrepreneurs, wealth creators, and uh, anything from what's the purpose of your wealth and what you want to do through to investing the money. Yeah. And maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, wealth, what do you categorise that as? Is there, is there a sort of 
you know, um, a benchmark of wealth that's needed to become a customer, a client of Stonehenge Fleming, or is is there quite is there some flexibility? There's always there's always flexibility. I think that the dividing line has got to be where we can actually be helpful. Yeah. Uh, so so our you know our specialism is is definitely around those who have you know created wealth from building a business. So on, entrepreneurs, we look if I look at our client base, you know, in, including the clients who have been with us for say thirty plus years and are now multinational multi generational billionaires they always start by building a business so there was a wealth creator and uh, where we've gone through a journey with that wealth creator from building a business through then uh, selling it or building another business right through to their family today you you can see us helping in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and so uh, you know if if there's a you know I suppose a clear area where we can say yeah we can we can help with that or, or we can give you peace of mind around that or we've got experience of that then we're delighted to be involved yeah and it's it's much more than perhaps what most of us have experienced when you start making some money which is some financial advice it's it's a real partnership um it's it's a real sort of um advisory management role that is not just something that you dip into every now and again it's a constant isn't it yeah we, we see ourselves as in a successful relationship being very much at the center uh so so helping uh giving peace of mind uh, and that can be you know, just doing something very small to you know, you know, running a whole a, a bunch of different things for 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 a family. But we try and have that kind of connection. I think, uh, you know, many people who have you know been CEO of a private equity business turned that into a monetization of found. Then there's this kind of swarm of advisors that uh, comes across the horizon, all saying that they can be your best friend. Uh, you know, not all of them can. Uh, some of them will be very, very good. But working out which is which is which, and trying to kind of step back and say, okay, I understand about investing money, and I understand about uh, getting my financial affairs in order, which I may or may not have done. Uh, but having a conversation with someone that says, actually, you know, where are we going with this? What, what do we want to do? Mm. And getting that as the start point is very much a hallmark of what we try to do. Yeah, great. Okay, so what what led you into this business? What what obviously you, I, you'd sold iPads and be very successful. We'll come back to that in a second. But what was the event that led um, Fleming Stonehage to require an external CEO? And and what's the plan now? So. Stonehenge Fleming had, uh, I think, been a very successful business over a number of years uh, and uh, had reached a sort of inflection point which said, this is a very attractive market, the the, the uh, client base that we're focusing on, so you know, wealth creators, entrepreneurs, established families. It's a market that's you know, complex. It's a market that is um, you know, increasing in its level of challenge. And we think we could be even more successful and grow even faster. What do we need to do to achieve that? Do we need to, to, to change something? And that, and that led to a thinking which said, well, maybe now is the point to bring in external investment mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, in the context of internal, external investment to uh, consider a, a private equity investment. Uh, and the, the, the team, the founders of the, of, of the business, um, talked to uh, a number of different potential private equity investors, uh, considered a, a, a number of different types of investor and settled on Caledonia coming in with a 35% stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caledonia uh, selected really around you know, values and attitude. So 
perhaps um, you know the private capital arm of the Caledonia Investment Trust having perhaps a longer time frame than a traditional time limited private equity fund. So you're not having to work to a three to five year. So we don't have to work to a three to five year timetable. Um, doesn't mean that uh, you know Caledonia isn't trying to do absolutely the best for its shareholders, just like any other of investment course. manager. And, and at the same time as um, you know, bringing that uh, external investment, then uh, you know, a, a move to you know, change the management. So not not people going out of the business, but those who had been running the business, focusing in on client management and client relationships and bringing in a new management team, which you might refer to as a professional management team. Well, I'm very cautious when I use that phrase. They built great business. I'm not trying to imply that uh, uh, it was unprofessional before, but I think there's Mm. almost an accepted meaning around that sort of sense of professional management when when families or owner-managed businesses want to take themselves up to the next level, then look out and see, okay, who's done this kind of thing before? Who who has experience? Uh, So I joined uh, John Connolly, former uh, worldwide chairman of Deloitte, joined as chairman, uh, and uh, Adrian Gardner, who'd worked with me at IPES as my CFO and indeed RSM Tenon, which I ran before. A previous uh, podcast guest, actually. A, a yeah. previous podcast guest, exactly. Uh, so, so we came in to get to, to work together again. And it all worked out well. Just tell us a little bit about IPES then. and just, you know, just It's useful for the listener because we're going to talk about your experiences as a private equity bank CEO. So... Um, that, that was backed by Silverfleet, wasn't it? I think they got involved. Yes, yeah, so, so IPA is a private equity fund administrator, so basically providing all of the back office to, pri- to private equity funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Silverfleet, interestingly, in- invested quite early on in the cycle of administrators being backed by private equity. Uh, so I think when, when Silverfleet invested, there was almost a sense of, well, that's, that's kind of interesting, uh, but you're a private equity fund. The customers of the business are private equity funds. Is there a conflict of interest? How's that going to work? Yeah, yeah. Roll on a couple of years from uh, that uh, acquisition, and virtually every administrator was owned by private equity. But there was a sort of little bit of a hiatus. But they could see uh, again a slightly unloved sector, um, very fragmented, lots of small businesses, uh, very strong in terms of client retention and cash flow conversion, and and with private equity uh, you know, growing, as we can see now, if you look back over the last six, seven, eight years, the, the, the growth in, in funds and number of uh, private equity fund managers has been has been huge. Uh, so so an, an area which uh, you know, was fronting on to a growing industry and itself needed professionalization. So uh, the, the private equity funds themselves generally domiciled in places like uh, Guernsey, Jersey, uh, Luxembourg, mm. um, places where yeah, the supply of labour perhaps is relatively limited, and yeah, relatively small businesses. So, uh, you know, focus on um, professionalisation, digitisation, using systems better, Im- improving service, mm-hmm. uh, make, making sure that that delivery of information to both to the private equity fund and to their ultimate investors was uh, you know, in- increased and improved, making sure compliance with regulation. So we're just going through the whole kind of post-financial crisis. How do we regulate private equity? What sort of controls do we need to put on? So responding to, to, to all of that. So in, in some ways, a, a very uh, similar set of characteristics to Stone Egg Fleming. So yeah. an, un- an underlying you know, client sector, which is interesting, growing fast and very demanding. The supply in terms of the service providers, um, quite fragmented and you know, professionalising very, very quickly uh, and um, against just a, a very interesting economic backdrop. Yeah. So you, you, you told us earlier, um, fifth CEO role, 
couple in, in public companies, private company now, two private equity backed. But I think knowing you now, you'll probably this is probably where you'd want to stay, isn't it, in a private equity backed CEO role? And, yeah, and the key thing is is the word private. Uh, so, so, you know, um, sources of funds, different investors, they all, they, uh, they have they have their merits, but uh, uh, both the, the the private and and the long term elements, uh, I think, appeal to me. Uh, there's you know, a sense sometimes that you know, you've got one shareholder that must be easier to easier to deal with, or you've got many shareholders in the sense of a public company. They must be more distant. I think it, it's you know, more nuanced than that. There is a there's a, obviously a reporting cycle with public companies and a scrutiny with public companies in terms of information that has to be provided, whether that's then media interest or anything else. But that shouldn't be, I think, seen as distinct from from a uh, you know, pressure to perform. So the pressure to perform, whether it comes from many shareholders or, or one shareholder, can, can be the same. Mm. But you can work out your um, strategy, your your interests, your your, uh, your day-to-day challenges, effectively behind closed doors with private capital, whereas a, a lot of it's not behind closed doors with public company capital. Yeah. And is that the main difference as far as you're concerned? Or is it also the sort of leading towards the fact that there's going to be an event, you know, um, public companies, you're turning the handle for share performance. But here in a private company, certainly private equity backed with, you know, three to five year capital or long term capital, you're heading towards some sort of event and occurrence. Yeah, I think the you can look at that in, in, in two ways, I think, uh, you know, the positive uh, sense of that would be to say well you're in you're in control of your destiny so yeah. so the the idea is to be growing the company adding value to the company and then managing it through to uh, either a new shareholding or an added shareholding or but you know on, on its route to hopefully greater and better things yeah i think if, in, in a public company you can't sort of delude yourself that um you know, nothing will happen, and mm. it just kind of goes on unchanged for, for forever. Uh, because you know, you can see that public companies can can be taken over very suddenly. Uh, a lot of scrutiny can go into that process. You know, CEO changes in public companies yeah happen quite a lot. So you can end up being the event rather than making the event happen. Yeah. Uh, so again, I think it's different, and and it's in, you know it's always I think interesting as well when uh, you're talking to the people in a business that that some somehow. You know, there's a sort of change, an event happening every three to five years, which is disruptive. I see it more, more, you know, like a, a trite analogy. There's a, you know, a train stopping at a station. There's several stations along the way, but the journey continues. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and for for people's careers, because you know, a business like ours is all about the people in it. For people's careers, uh, any any change in shareholding or any of those stops at a station shouldn't be seen as as threatening. They bring extra opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, um, and and it's the the value. Uh, so I, 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 and I, and I think uh, you know private equity um, companies and private equity bars and sellers are very sophisticated. So this kind of trite notion that you just kind of fatten up your company for that event and actually it's you know just below the surface is not very fat after all, and everyone's fooled, and then you move on to the next thing. It doesn't doesn't happen. It's no. like that comp- so building up the company, adding value, making sure you're in a position to keep growing and keep adding value post uh, any any kind of event. Is, is vital yeah, to success. Absolutely. I mean, fine, you know, private equity is a form of financing. The purpose of yeah. that form of financing is to uh, Im- improve the return on that finance. But for the, from a business's perspe- perspective, it's a form of financing which allows you to accelerate growth 
that takes you through a chapter in the business's development and history. Yeah. And, all, and there has to be is. a purpose to that growth as, as well. So, uh, again, I think you know, people fall into traps. Some of think, well, you just, you just want to grow in order to be big because somehow someone thinks big is good. Uh, and that's, uh, I think, again, you have to look at the industry you're in and what you're trying to do. So from our perspective here, uh, yeah, we know that life is getting more complex. If we look at our clients, uh, they, they as families go through multiple generations, they're uh, probably in more than one country. Uh, so they've got families in, in, in different areas. Uh, the, the range of interests that they have in order to either in, invest or get advice uh, uh, tends to grow as well. So you quite quickly get to a point and say, well, it's quite clear we can serve our clients better if we have greater breadth and depth of resource. Uh, regulation, of course, growing massively and affecting uh, uh, you know, any financial services business and, and then the, the, the families them, themselves. So, so we're really building a business that can look after its chosen client base even better. And that leads us to growth mm. rather than saying, let's get bigger because then we can do X, Y, Z. Yeah. The experience of becoming uh, IPEZ's uh, CEO, so operating under private equity for mm. the first time, you know, what were the lessons that you really picked up in those during that time that are really valuable now to you second time around? So, so I think the first experience of working, as it were, with private equity as, as the financial backer is when you try to learn what, what they think. Uh, and I think it's always very important to understand your stakeholders so whether it's public company private company private equity backed company understanding the stakeholder and what's happening in their minds what's going on on the other side of the desk what motivates them what are the mechanics and, and yeah i think you know one of the essential uh, you know features of pep talks is to equip you know ceos and now broader management with that knowledge so what, what are these guys thinking yeah uh, and, and why don't they think like me uh, or, or whatever but i think it gives you your first um, experience gives you that real direct sort of sense of okay, what what's the cycle here? But I also learned, and then this partly through the IPES client base as well, that actually every private equity firm is slightly different. Uh, some of them are hugely different. So they, the the approach, the way that uh, they they will deal with a management team or a company can change. The you know, private equity firms have their own characteristics, their own people. Uh, and so it, it, it's not just uh, all private equities like this or all private equities like, like that. But I think getting getting those kind of essential building blocks, particularly of some, how some of the financial cycles work, some of how some of the returns work, what, what their investors are expecting, who they're accountable to. Uh, un- understanding the art of the possible sometimes, un- understanding yeah, how to manage that particular group of stakeholders is incredibly valuable when you then you know, start start to do it again. Yeah, and probably again a truism like uh, everything else. Once once you've done it once, you know, if you do it again, the yeah you know, the, the second set of investors are reassured because they see experience on your CV that uh, they like to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can't get away from you know, the massive importance, though, of running the company that you're managing well and achieving the overall strategy of the company. Managing the stakeholder is you know, one part of that, as you know, in the same way as any other source of financing, it would be one one part of that. But understanding you know, how that operates, both both you know, 
good and bad, uh, I think is in- incredibly important. Yeah. And n- nothing but the experience teaches you that. Does yes. It? I mean, you, yeah. can, you can certainly help with some anecdotal experience shared around a pep talks table, but actually doing it yourself and working those relationships through and understanding what the what the investor needs and wants yeah. and requires for their own businesses. Because that's not just, they're not personalities. They're in... They're in business to deliver a service to an institutional shareholder who frankly needs their money back plus 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 a return time, times two, really, yeah, two yeah, and a half. Yes, so yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's what your shareholder, that's what your investor is is requiring when they're sitting around the board. But then what about the process of um I don't know whether this is vastly different or not in a public company, but that process of trying to really accelerate value creation, implementing the value creation plan, taking you sort of to the point that you're imagining, you know, this business looks like this in three years time and these are the instruments we're going to use to get there. I mean, is that is that vastly different? I think it's, you can be much more avert with your shareholder base, I think, in terms of things like a five-year plan. Uh, and, and if that has to change, then all agree that it changes. I think if you've got a you know, pub- public disclosures in a public company, um, you know, the, the, the if you need to make a change, that seems a, a lower level of tolerance in place. So, so I think you can work through and work together more on your plans and then particularly on your growth ideas when you've got you know, really one one shareholder who you're working alongside. Mm. So when we set out you know, our, our, our plans and you know, had an idea of, of our growth, inevitably you're focusing partly on organic growth, partly on acquisition uh, growth. And trying to tease out the aspects of that that make most sense, you can you can you know have open discussions. You can draw on the experience that the uh, private equity investor has with other companies they've invested in. Uh, you, you can see what they've done in 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 past situations, which I think is is you know closer and different from the the, the public company relationship. So from from that point of view, I think uh, it, it it helps because of that time horizon being a bit longer. Yeah. And what what other challenges do you look back on and think um, those were experiences that helped me today? Leadership and yeah, culture I think development. The, um, the, the key things around leadership, I, I, I think, are in the end sort of giving giving space and being able to uh, you know, get things done. Uh, and if you think about things that a CEO will will prioritise. You know, we, we completed an, an acquisition earlier this year. We bought the private client business of uh, Maitland, which for us was a, a good good sized acquisition. It, it grew our top line overnight by about twenty five percent, so reasonable size. And you know, I, I, I for a period of time, you know, that was my number one task and took up you know almost all of my time. Yeah. So you've got to if be able to balance your workload so that if there's an acquisition that starts to happen of some size you you can dedicate all your time to it and you can only do that if you've got the right people operationally running the business and uh, yeah take, taking things forward uh, and then when that finishes you can't just then sort of sit and do nothing you you've got to make sure you you balance your uh, attention to focus on whatever then is most important. I think the ability, the ability to you know, effectively clear out the 
uh, very important but not vital and replace it with the vital for a while and then go back to the very important and have yeah. the people around you to allow you make that balance is, is the key thing. And if it's the equivalent sort of thing would be when we went into the sale process for iPairs to be able to just absolutely 100% focus on getting the right result through that, through that sale process and know that the rest of the business would carry on and the people would run it so you didn't get disruption. Yeah is a huge value add because you can quite easily, if you get too many of your management in a small business suddenly distracted, it will have an effect on value very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, building the team and having that team that can manage the business is critical yeah. to the role of the CEO, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, your job is not to be all over the business. Your job is to create a team and environment and a culture which operates on its own uh, and you then look to add value above that rather than yeah and and then and then communicate uh, so a hu- huge amount of my time is spent on you know various forms of communication so whether that's you know being able to go and see people uh, in in their own uh, um, locations so whether that's either other clients or our own people wherever they might be across our 12 jurisdictions uh, or it's you know writing things down or it's having things like we have our, our most senior layer of people is called partner and we have our first partners meeting for four years coming up in September this year so it was meant to be every two years but then of course yeah. pandemic came through uh, so it's focusing on you know that kind of dialogue uh, making sure that people know what the top priorities are getting people aligned and being able to you know kind of flex your day to deal with that and then so the experience of having done that before having yeah. to whether it's um you know at uh, rsm10 and responding to a crisis of a business that was you know almost almost bust and had to be built up again and restoring people's confidence or the sale process or whatever it might be at stoning fleming as we go forward yeah someone someone said to me that being a ceo of a private equity about business is you know all of those things you just described but also you're sort of trying to predict the future You're looking ahead, you're sort of trying to understand or think about where you're going to be in a certain timescale and pick the moments for certain actions and activities. And and recognise then that not everything is in your control because it's very easy to, with the uh, three to five year cycle, say, right, we're going to do this on this date. But then what if someone bids for you early or what if no one wants to buy you at the stage you want you've decided to have this event uh you you've got to be able to have that flexibility and that optionality to get the best result and that's the best result for all of the different stakeholders so yeah you can't control everything and when we put together our uh you know five-year strategies or we'd like to do you know an acquisition of this size an acquisition of that size a couple like this and over the five years this is what we'll build up it's only going to work if those acquisitions are available and you can uh you know make them work yeah it's been one of the interesting things over the last uh uh, year or so, you know, since since we did uh, or agreed the, the the Maitland transaction has been just the the, the prices that uh, some businesses have you know gone for. So mm. we, we've you know, walked away from a huge amount of acquisitions because the yeah the economics haven't worked. Yeah, uh, and you've got to be able to build that in. So okay, how how do you make sure that the organic growth perhaps takes up a larger percentage of your plan than the inorganic because the inorganic isn't economically going to make sense and deliver the benefit. How hard is it to walk away from a from an acquisition that you've been working on or been potentially chasing in the market for some time because of price? It, it, it's quite hard. It's quite hard, uh, and yeah, you know, particularly if you've uh, got something where you can see that you know, 
cultural fit looks good, client base. We we would work on a kind of hierarchy to say, you know, is is this business dealing with the same uh, kind of client base that we're dealing with? Because uh, that's important to us. Uh, then it would be around cultural fit. Uh, does, does the management fit? Do they have the same kind of aspirations and the same approach to things? Uh, and and then into the kind of well, how much is it going to cost? Uh, so once you've identified something from afar and we try and build up relationships, you know, walking away can be can be very difficult. Mm. Uh, but we're very strict with ourselves in terms of yeah ha- having to add value. Uh, and, and if you think you just can't add anything, then, then you have to walk away. Yeah. So what's the, what's the what's the business you're trying to build here, or you are building here? What's the it's long term capital, so you don't have the the clock ticking down in a in a three to five year window, which must be really advantageous, mm-hmm. especially in a buy and build, especially looking at acquisitions as a source of, um, of value creation but what's what does the shape of the business look like in six seven years time for you so we've, we've looked at it i think from uh, a variety of ways including you know geography client base uh, and service uh, and and i think the those bring you know, different elements to it so ge- geographically uh, this business is becoming global uh, so we can look at Two, two aspects. First of all, are, are there major geographies where we don't have a presence at all? Uh, and that is fairly simple to identify. So we'll, we, we don't have any presence in Asia uh, and we have a small presence in, in the US. But in terms of you know, relativity to the US market, it's almost you know, um, yeah. neg- negligible. So you've got a great team in, in Philadelphia you know, growing nicely, but it's a huge, it's a huge market. So there you can see strategic to, to, to be global, we would end up with a, a significant presence in both of those geographies. And then when, I, when I'm looking at uh, yeah, where areas where we are already, Europe, Europe and Africa, to say, yeah, I, I, we can be more effective if we have critical mass. So, so if we've yeah, identified that we need to be in a certain area uh, or, or in a certain uh, aspect of our service, you, you don't want to just have two or three people and be very vulnerable to uh, uh, yeah, lack of continuity. You want to have the critical mass to, to, to do that. So an example might be um, in Luxembourg. So as uh, Stonehenge Fleming before acquiring Maitland's private client business, uh, we had a small corporate services business in Luxembourg, but we were less than 10 people. And that's very difficult to get traction in a market like Luxembourg. Mm. Add in the Maitland business, now we're a 50-person business. And that allows us to think differently and do different things. And the Luxembourg market in terms of where people hold their wealth, where people have uh, you know, corporate structures in particular, is, is important to us and it's important to our clients. So that puts us in a very different position. Uh, and growing Luxembourg from our you know, fewer than 10 by organic growth, you know, people here, people there, a team, is much more difficult than that jump up. Mm. We don't want to have lots of dots on maps in lots of places. We don't want to be everywhere. Uh, but where we are in a location and we think is valuable, then having the right critical mass is important. So Maitland brought us um, mostly you know, critical mass in existing jurisdictions, plus some additional jurisdictions where we didn't have a presence, like the Isle of Man and, and, and Mauritius. Now, as we look out, we're thinking, well, where can we you know, get that extra um, geographic coverage, which will give our clients a a service provision that we haven't had up until now, and of course, bring in clients that we're perhaps not reaching. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's getting us to a business that 
is more global and there isn't a global player in, in, in the multifamily office um, you know, sub, subsector of our industry. So everything's quite fragmented, everything's quite geographically focused. Gradually, we've seen some particularly US to Europe combinations in, in, in our sector. Uh, and you know, that's driven by exactly the same factors that we've identified. So, so we have strength in depth, expertise wherever we need that expertise and, and the ability to meet the needs of the client base globally. And, and that then drives you to the shape of the business that you end up in five, 10 years time. Yeah, sounds very exciting. You've got an opportunity to really build a global player or consolidate the market. So when it, let's talk a little bit about um, the, the service of wealth management then. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll just tell an anecdote um, without any names mentioned, but um, and which will lead me to the question. But one of our um, members was in a situation where they went through um, a secondary deal. The business had just massively outperformed done incredibly well so the management team made an awful lot of money more money than they expected to make and on the other side they went through it was a it was a secondary deal uh, with another private equity firm but that had quite quite a big psychological impact on on the management team and a few of them were hugely distracted actually Mm. they got to you know I think the CEO is a, f- a fabulous CEO, and I think he sort of said, "Look, you know, don't turn up next week and fill the car park with Ferraris and Lamborghinis. I'm not interested. I want to see it." But it still had a huge distraction on on them as a management team, and, and frankly, a few of them didn't make it. He had it led him to have to change some of his team, and um, you know, I suppose that's it's a it's a good place to start in for private equity backed CEOs to be thinking about well. If I if I don't do something about this, both from a personal perspective and a team perspective, there could be quite serious consequences of that in a in another private equity deal. I mean, fine if you bought by trade and you're selling off into the sunset, there's not an issue. But um, what you've been through that process mm-hmm. yourself as a private equity back CEO before you even getting anywhere close to managing a and leading a wealth management business, I and mean, what? What would your advice be? When did you start thinking about it? What actions did you take? So it's probably a, a, another kind of cobbler's children type story that, um, yeah, I, I, I'm probably not a very good example in terms of yeah, think, thinking about it or, or what I should or should not have, uh, have done. Uh, and you're right, though, about the distraction. Uh, and quite interesting that, uh, you know, we went through the IPES exit, and uh, one of the things, yeah, Sylvie very kindly said to us that was that Adrian and I had kept very level heads through the process, and quite often that uh, they or, or you know, companies they're buying, they will see that that the management team can be quite distracted, particularly as it gets to the very closing stages of a deal, um, because you suddenly think actually this prospect of turning my sweet equity into money has suddenly become real. And, oh no, what am I going to do? Because that could be next week. Mm. Uh, and you don't want a deal to crumble or management team to lose their focus if you're the private equity house. So that, at that point, uh, it's not helpful. So, so planning ahead, and I, I absolutely appreciate this kind of dichotomy almost, That, uh, and, and I know a number of people, me included, probably think, thought the same thing, that if, if I 
if I treat it as if it's happened and start planning, then I might kind of jinx the whole thing and, you know, therefore there's no point in planning I, I, either I way. I think that's there? definitely true, isn't uh, it? And uh, actually yeah. it's much, much better. And I think there's, there's, we, we see um, a range of, uh, of different things, but it, it, probably a fair truism to say that uh, entrepreneurs uh, and, you know, private equity-backed uh, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and indeed the private equity partners themselves, tend to focus all of their energy on, on their business and their day-to-day. Absolutely. That's, that's the be-all and end-all. And um, therefore don't plan. And the number of people we see here in, in Stony Fleming, people who you'd think are phenomenally successful and incredibly uh, you know, wealthy, and our, our team asks them a few simple questions like, have you got a will? Have you got a pension? And have you got life insurance? And the number of times you get no to all those three three simple questions. So you're not... You're not immediately sort of suddenly into this incredibly sophisticated global wealth management and advice uh, you know, suite of uh, services. And we're, we're, we're starting, and, and it would have been you know, fair with me as well, with the, with the kind of basics. Sort of, so have, you, have you kind of got the, the basic bits in order? So yeah. if something happened to you tomorrow, would your, your family be okay? Would someone know what to do? Uh, you know, would you take the, the tension out of it? Because, the, yeah, the, and we've, again, sadly seen this, if, if someone who's been running the business and has all the wealth and hasn't really told the family very much dies suddenly and leaves a mess and no will, no life insurance is almost by definition Probate on its own disaster. Uh, a mess. That's kind of not very fair on those you're leaving behind. No. So there's a simple level. And then I think there's a, 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 a longer term level. I think the thinking about, you know, why am I doing this? And uh, if, if I do succeed in this particular role as CEO, do I want to then do it again? And if I do it again, do I want to yeah, reinvest and I, do I want to take the same management team? So those, those longer term questions, I think, are worth thinking about at an early stage. Yeah. But also just having some, you know, some simple uh, aspects in place. So I'd say to everybody, you know, make, make sure you've got those three things of, uh, you know, ha- have a will, have some life insurance, uh, have a pension in place. But then, you know, start to think, well, if, if I did turn you know, my sweet equity into, you know, whether it's 5, 10, 15, 50 million, uh, yeah. whatever it is, these, these are, you know, life-changing sums at, at any kind of level. And then what, what, what am I going to do? What motivates me? How am I going to change? And then there, there are decisions you can take at an early stage. But much better to have that without the pressure, because well, you know, I've I've seen uh, and and you do see it. The, the the Ferrari salesmen do come and knock yeah. on the door because they read about these deals in the press, and very often the Ferrari salesmen make a sale. Uh, and you do see it. <laughs> what else do I spend on? <laughs> a, yeah. a car. So you got a car park full of Ferraris, and uh, yeah, not 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 much else. And it yeah. does distract distract people. Um, and, and then what happens a year later, two years later, all, all the rest of it, you, yeah. do, you want to move on to the next thing. So I think it's yeah, being able to think about things in a calm and orderly way rather than the bright lights of um, lots and lots of people trying to talk to you is yeah. very sensible. I think it's really healthy not to be counting, not, not to be putting the numbers into your spreadsheet mm-hmm. and banking them in. Yeah, as absolutely. If they're, they're absolutely. In your bank account. Yeah. I, mean, we don't, you know, I think that's, that's really important, but probably six to 12 months out, you know, there needs to be a sort of higher level of thinking of, because some of the trap of, of what am I going to do here? Because people can fall into some really horrible bear traps. Like I've just done a set, done a secondary, whether you're a CEO or an executive in this circumstance. And now I'm going to go and spend, you know, maybe 50% or more of what I've just made on a, a building project. Hmm. 
<laughs> so you're the CFO or CEO, CEO of a business that's going through another turn of private equity. And believe us, that second turn is as demanding, if not more, Absolutely. than the first yeah. turn. Yeah. And now you're going to you know, spend a huge amount of the wealth you just created on a house. It's going to require a massive amount of your attention and be demanding of your time. Yeah. That's just, you, you definitely shouldn't do that. No, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll fail at one or the other if, if, that, if that happens. So, so I think that's, you know, good example of you know, what do I want to do so if I'm what do I want to do if I want to be a kind of part-time house builder great but yeah. part-time house builder and full-time CEO of a private equity business don't fit together I think the other thing that's probably you know causes this type of thinking is it is kind of all or nothing your your, your sweet equity is either going to be worth nothing or it's going to be worth a lot there isn't really anything in between and nothing happens until there's a transaction yeah uh, and that's very different to someone who might you know, in, a, in a public company, build, build up shares that over a period of time vest and over a period of time you know, add their value and you can see each day in the share price where that's going to. Mm. Uh, you know, the, the, the sweet equity only has value at the point of the transaction. And that does, you know, I think, tempt you to think, well, I, I'll only think about it when I demonstrably have value. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think you know, we all know whether our business is doing well or doing badly. Uh, and so you, you do have absolutely a solid sense that you're on to, if you certainly as most people do, uh, you know, you, you've got to back yourself to be successful. Uh, and therefore, thinking about it, doing something about it is the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, I would definitely recommend them coming to talk to you guys. I mean, just, you know, managing any of that on the other side, even if you say you're sensible, you're saying I do very little with it. Um, well, then it's going to be sat in a bank account doing very little uh, in an inflationary market. And actually managing your own, I mean, I, I, I do, I've got those three things, I'll be happy to report. Um, but the rest of it, I do myself and doing it yourself, it's just, it's a pain. It's, a, it's really time consuming. Uh, you don't, you're not an expert, so you get no. lots of things wrong. Uh, actually giving it to somebody and just saying, well, I'm going to outsource all of this and, and that, worry that, about to it be, later. That's absolutely the best thing. Uh, and and uh, you know, the other thing, of course, is that y your your family's future, what you want to do, assuming you've thought it through, is then dependent on that on that wealth. And, and unless you're an investment management professional yourself, you should take the same attitude as you would with anything else. Uh, you know, yeah. Would you suddenly start building your own house? as in the bricks rather than the supervision. Definitely no, not. Definitely not. So why would you think you can invest in that? And I think, again, there's a sort of sense, and I probably had it, well, I kind of know what I, I know what a will is, and I had one 15 years ago, I know what pensions are, and that's probably all right, rather than getting a little bit closer and saying, actually, I need to look at this regularly, yeah. uh, and by, by having the, the right advice in place. And I think also building a relationship for the, for the long term, which is very much at the heart of our business. We, we're we're in, in business to work with clients over you know, 20, 30, 50 years. Uh, and, and so building the kind of relationship over the long term that can benefit you is, is vital. Yeah. Well, look, it's been lovely talking to you again today, Chris. Uh, it's, you know, it's clearly going extremely well here. No doubt because of that, um, that toolkit of experiences that you've had in the past, definitely helping out. Uh, and you know, if, if any members or uh, listeners want to reach out and find out more about Stonehenge Fleming, then let us know and we'll, we're very happy to put you in touch with, with Chris and his team. And they, you will be at our conference, won't you? We will, now looking forward to it. Uh, enjoyed the conference last year and indeed the virtual conference the year before. So looking forward to being there. Should be a good day, November the 17th. Thanks very much. Thank you.